back in the, I think it was mid to late 90s, went on a mission trip with a few people from this church, and the group as a whole was only probably, I don't even remember, nine or ten of us. We went to a place in uh, north-central Siberia called Radushni, and we were really the only Christian element in that community. There was a Russian Orthodox church there. And we went and we, we had to come in at the invitation of, uh, of the mayor because a young man that was with us was the mayor's secretary. That's how we got in there. And it was a challenging trip, emotionally, spiritually. And uh, generally, I pretty much get homesick by the time the second week's getting over with anyway. But this particular trip, it was spiritual warfare, which I'm sure was a large part of it. We were ready to go home. But we also had a vision that the Lord had told us we were going to meet a particular group of people we hadn't met. So the last day, we were ready to go home, and we went to the airport. And uh, our little translator runs into the airport, who was the son of the mayor's secretary, and he comes running out, and some of you have heard me say this before, but he comes running out uh, going, the plane go boom. And we're thinking, something blew up or what? Well, it turned out what he meant was there is no plane. There is no flight. There never has been. You can't get to where we thought we were going, that we had tickets in our hand for. That flight didn't exist. Therefore, our seats didn't exist. And they have never, ever, ever flown from the city we were in, of Radushni to Novosibirsk, where we were supposed to be going on our way back to Moscow. Needless to say, we, I'll speak for me, I was bummed. <laughs> I was ready to go home. We're thinking, how are we going to get tickets, exchange tickets? And if you've never been to Russia back in the 90s, nothing worked. And we were going to eat those tickets. Well, the Lord blessed us amazingly that night when we went back to where we were staying. There's a knock on the door in the late in the evening, and here it is, a group of five or six people that were Christians and had been looking for us the whole two weeks we were there. And we had a wonderful time with them. We had communion with them. We were able to leave them money to, uh, and Bible studies that we'd bought in Russian, brought in Russian. And about, I don't know what time it even was, one, two, three in the morning, there's a knock on our door, maybe it was later, that there's a plane, you're ready to go back to Moscow, we've got tickets. And I remember we flew back, and nothing, nothing goes smooth, but I don't want to go into all the details, but we finally landed. And I remember when I saw Cindy at the airport, I gave her a hug and just started weeping. And I said, I'm never going back. You remember that? <laughs> I wanted to go home so bad. I wanted to be home so bad. I couldn't think of anything else sitting in the plane. I just want to get home. Just get me home. I'll never leave again. Well, the title of my sermon is, it, it's, Isn't It Time to Go Home? And I thought it was very interesting that Brian had chose a song, Come Home Running, that we haven't sang for ages. And when you hear the word home, I mean, I don't know how many of you get a picture in your mind of that beautiful place that's so peaceful and wonderful and colorful and, oh, it's just awesome. And right away when we think of home, usually our thoughts go to family and it's still nothing but yay, right? Like angels singing. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe not. 
You know, we have a spiritual home, yes, in heaven. Jesus went to prepare a place for us. But each one of us have a spiritual place in our own lives that we feel safe and secure, where God wants us to be, that place where we can be all that he intended us to be, where we can walk in the abundant life that Jesus Christ died to give us. There is their spiritual home. So I'm going to be using the word home often in the service today, in my message, but most of the time I'm going to be talking not about something made of brick or mortar or sticks, and not even our heaven and home, but that spiritual home that we can have, that, that God has for us. That's the home I want to talk about. But when you think of home, oftentimes we, we, we think of uh, family, as I said. And, you know, I don't know about you, but most of the time when I think of home and family, there's a lot of great memories, and then there's those other memories. You know, those other ones that you really don't want to talk about often. The ones that aren't so good at home. And reality is, you may look around, and I've had people say this to me in meetings. They look around in church on a Sunday morning and they think, I'm the only idiot in this place that doesn't have their act together. Everybody else does. My marriage is the only marriage that's struggling. My kids are the only ones that misbehave. I'm the only one that can't get in the Word. I'm the only one that doesn't want to get in the Word. The reality is you're not alone. And I don't care how good your family was or is, your family, like my family, has some baggage. Everybody's got some baggage. Now, depending upon what kind of home we grew up in, that baggage may influence our life a little more or a less, little less than others. But there's a dysfunction in all of them. You know, so when, when you look at fulfilling your destiny or even hearing those words, some of you are maybe going, yeah, right. You're just happy to be surviving a dysfunctional family that you're maybe currently in right now or that you were raised in. And to hear somebody talk about that destiny. To talk about going home. And thinking of home as as a place where we can live in safety, security, enabling us to experience the abundant life in Christ. You just, not me. It's not going to happen for me. You know, some of us probably think our home is so dysfunctional that there's no way you could ever fulfill your destiny. Matter of fact, some of you probably, and I think I've heard this before from a few people, you didn't even believe that God has one for you, much less you're going to walk it out and and live it. The truth is, God has a destiny for every single one of us. Every single one of us. I believe, and I believe this based on how I understand Scripture, that God created every single one of us in this room for a purpose. A great purpose to bring Him glory because everything He created is for His glory. But I don't, that's, that's kind of big. But I believe he has a personal, personal purpose for every single person in this room. And I believe if he has a purpose for us, he calls us into that purpose. And if I believe that if he calls us into that purpose, he's going to prepare us to carry out that purpose. He's going to equip us to carry out that purpose. And the preparing and equipping, then there's going to be the grace to accomplish that purpose or the power to accomplish that purpose by God, by the Holy Spirit. I believe all these things, and you know what's really cool? I believe that all these things are ultimately in the control of God. And really what I need to do is cooperate. Just cooperate. But we have sometimes so much baggage that we have a hard time hearing truth, hearing the Holy Spirit, and cooperating. 
That's kind of what we've been talking about the last few weeks. You know, where are we at in our emotional life, which is inhibiting or hindering our spiritual life? What is it that's preventing us from fulfilling that destiny and living in peace and safety and security in a spiritual life and fulfilling our destiny? Satan, as I said, even as I was praying, it just keeps coming to me this morning, he is a liar and a deceiver and a counterfeiter. Those are his weapons. That's, that's his weaponry. Think about that. Where is the power in that if we don't believe them? There is none. He has no power. His lies have no power. His counterfeiting has no power. His deceptions have no power as long as I don't believe them. But there's a problem between whether I believe them or not is identifying what they are and having something to compare them to to, to discover are they true or false. And we have the truth. I believe he is going to prepare and equip every single one of us. Now, what does that look like, that preparing? I I don't know. What's it going to feel like? I don't know. How long is it going to take? I don't know. Will or survive? I hope so. I think yes, if we cooperate. But the reality is this. We have sometimes got this misguided idea that if God's got a call and a purpose for my life, that his equipping and, and, and preparing me and training me for ultimately walking out that call is going to be somehow easy and painless. And I'm not going to have to suffer. That I'm not going to have to really wrestle through this preparation. I believe that's a lie of the enemy. Because it isn't going to be that way very often. We are going to go through trials and testings. And sometimes if, we're, if, we, if we start getting into the little pity party that Brian mentioned, sort of a pity party of, you know, woe is me. My family was so dysfunctional, I can't fill in the blank. Or I'm so dysfunctional, I barely survived, therefore I can't. None of that is true. I want to look just briefly at a dysfunctional family once. Now, in Bible times, when they said family, they didn't mean just the people who lived in your house. They kind of went back even generations. Okay? So, there's this dysfunctional family. Most of you know the story of Joseph, right? Or at least you maybe know something about it. He had a multicolored coat that we used to sing about when we were in Sunday school. Some of you have never heard of Joseph or his multicolored coat. And that's okay. The point is this. His family was dysfunctional for generations. And when I say this family, wait till you hear who's in his family if you don't know. His great-great-grandfather was a man named Abraham. Abraham, this mighty man of God, who God called to establish his nation. You look back in his, his life, there's like, oh my goodness, really? And then we have Isaac, his grandfather. And Jacob, his father. You know, there's generations there of lying and deceiving. There's generations there of favoritism within the family. Anybody know that that's not healthy? There's generations of brothers being cut off from one another because of problems and issues within the family. And then you just look at his very immediate family. How would you like growing up in this family? And some of you can say, I am. (laughs) Dad had two wives and two concubines. 
and you've got ten older brothers from three different women, and they all hate your guts because you're daddy's favorite. How do you think that household functioned? Not very well. And so here's Joseph. The multicolored coat was just really a symbol of showing that his daddy favored him. And his brothers hated him even more, it says. In Joseph's life, for those of you who know the story, at a time his dad sends him to check on the rest of, the sheep, or the rest of his brothers and the sheep, and they see him coming, and they see him wearing his pretty coat. And they're sitting around having Israeli tea or something. And they say, here comes that little loser. Let's kill him. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. No one's going to know. Let's just kill him and be done with him. Well, instead, they take and they throw him in a pit. And they're still planning on killing him. They throw him in an empty well, basically. And one of the brothers, Reuben, the oldest brother, is thinking, I'm gonna, i am got to get him out of this mess. But he leaves. And by the time he gets back, they decided not to kill him. Why don't we make a little money? Here came a caravan of their enemies. And they took their brother and sold him. For 20 pieces of silver, I think it was. Things aren't going so well for this guy and this dysfunctional family. The caravan takes him all the way to Egypt. And they take him to the slave market. And a guy by the name of Potiphar, who is the, the head of the bodyguard of Pharaoh, buys this guy as a slave. So he's, he went from his homeland, his family... Now he's lost the family, he's lost the homeland, his brothers hate him, they didn't kill him, they sent him into slavery, now he's a slave in a foreign country. And then he, he, he's, God's hand is on him anyway, and, and, and in Potiphar's household, he blesses everything he does. Maybe things are turning around. That dysfunctional family thing, maybe I overcame it. And he's doing everything right, Potiphar's household is prospering, and Potiphar's wife is a little bit of a floozy. And she has her eyes on Joseph. And she says, come on, Joseph, Potiphar's gone. Jump in bed with me. And he says, no way. And this went on for day after day after day after day. And finally, there's no one in the house, and Joseph's there with her, and she reaches out and says, come on, lay with me, and grabs his cloak, and he finally runs. And, of course, she's holding his cloak. And she accuses him of raping her, and Potiphar throws him in prison. Man, he thought he had his act together, thought he was doing everything right, and he was doing everything right. Maybe this was his destiny. He's going to be in this household and have all the favoritism of the owner because he's doing such a good job. And for doing everything right, he gets thrown in prison for years. Doing everything right. And in prison, the head jailer Gives him authority and everything prospers as much as it can prosper in prison. And two other guys that had gotten the king really, or Pharaoh really mad at him, the, the baker and the cupbearer, had really ticked off Pharaoh. He'd thrown them in prison too. And one of the things God had given Joseph was a gift of dreams, going way back to before he was thrown in the pit by his brothers. Matter of fact, that got him in trouble too. He had these dreams and... And whether it was his pride or his innocence or his ignorance or what, 
He went to his brother and says, guess what? I had a dream. You're going to all bow down to me. I'm going to rule over you. That went over well. He had another dream. This time his mom and dad were included. So I'm going to rule over all of you. That went really well. Now you see why he ended up in a pit. But now he's in prison. And this baker and this cupbearer have a dream. And guess what? God gives them a gift of interpreting those dreams. And they come to pass just as he said. One of them gets released out of prison, goes back to being the cupbearer for Pharaoh. The other one gets out of prison just long enough to get his head cut off. And the one that was the cupbearer, Joseph had been smart. He said, hey, if you get out and all this comes to pass, just as I said, remember to tell the king or the Pharaoh and get me out of here. Good plan, except it didn't work. Cupbearer got out. Happened just as David said it would. He forgot all about telling Pharaoh about David until, until Pharaoh had a dream. And he called all the wise men of Egypt together and nobody could interpret the dream. And then the cupbearer remembered. There's this guy who grew up in a really dysfunctional family who can interpret dreams. Pharaoh said, go get him. He interpreted the dreams. It all played out just as he said it would. And to make that longer story shorter, he rose to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. Which would have meant in that day he was the second most powerful man on earth. And God prospered everything he did. Now, if we just started the story there, it would have sounded kind of cool. I'm the second most powerful man on earth. You did have a plan, God, thank goodness. But then you look back at what he had to go through in being equipped, prepared. Why did he have to go through all that stuff? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. We see some of the fruit of it as God prospered him. But maybe a better question than why is how in the world did he survive it? When you and I are going through tests and trials, how are we going to survive it? I th- we see in the, in the story of Joseph that eventually all his brothers, because there's a famine in the land, all of his brothers are sent and have to bow before Joseph because he's in charge of all the food in all of Egypt. And he ultimately saves his family, saves the nation of Israel. What a calling. What a destiny. And anywhere along the line, he could have blew it in the midst of all those tests and trials. What would you have done when your brothers throw you in the pit and they're talking about killing you? What would you have done when they sold you into slavery? What would you have done when you're innocent and you get thrown in prison and everybody just forgets about you? Anywhere along the line. How did he survive? How did he overcome all of the dysfunction of his family? How did he overcome the pain? How did he overcome the suffering and the abuse? How did he do all that? And ultimately forgive everybody that wronged him and rule over Egypt under Pharaoh. I believe there's only one answer that works. In the midst of all of that, no matter what, he trusted in God's love and in God's goodness, even in the worst circumstances. Even when it went from bad to worse, he trusted in God's love. If you want to read the whole story, it's in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Read it. It's amazing to see how he hung on to his faith in the midst of all that adversity. 
No matter what happened, he sought God and he remained faithful to God because he knew who God was. He trusted God. It's a repeating theme. We've got to know who he really is. We need to understand who he really is, just as, as Joseph did. Many of us, or most of us, have a past or have things in our past that can hold us back if we let the enemy or allow the enemy to do it. Because he will use anything. He will use anything to keep you and I thinking we're inadequate, we're not good enough, we're worthless. We just don't measure up. He'll do anything. Fear. He'll put fear in our hearts any way, any shape, and any time he possibly can to prevent us from walking by faith. That's what he does. He does not want you and I. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't belong to his kingdom anymore. You are now a child of God. But he does not want you to live out the destiny that God has for you. He does not want you to bring glory to God. He does not want you to be an effective witness for the kingdom. He will do anything he can to prevent that. He does not want us, so to speak, to discover our true home and live in it in safety and security, living out the abundant life in Christ. If he's lost you and you're a Christian, he wants to make you a miserable Christian and an ineffective Christian. That's his goal. And he won't quit. When we become Christians, we need to always remind ourselves that we have been adopted into the family of Christ. We are in God's family. He is our heavenly Father. And as we talked about last week, part of our discipleship is putting off that old sinful patterns of unbelief. Now, you may not think about when it's put off the old self, put off those old sinful patterns of unbelief. If you believe you're worthless, that's sin. Do you get that? If I sit here and think I'm a worthless, no good loser, that's sin. Why? Because God says I am a child of God created in his image, seated in heavenly places with him. So I'm really saying, God, you are so stupid, that's not who I am. You're wrong, that's not who I am. You're a liar, that's not who I am. I am worthless and not good enough. No one could love me. Those are the patterns of unbelief that settle in if we're not watchful. And then we're to put on the choices of faith. You know what? I don't always feel like a child of God. How about you? There's some days I'm not sure what I am. But child of God is not really the first thing I think of. And I need to get back on track. I need to listen to somebody who's holding me accountable, and I need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then remind me that, you know what? First thing, Mike, you're sinning. You're calling God a liar. I don't usually think of it that way. Do you? Because I'd never call God a liar to his face. I don't think most of us would. But if his word says one thing, and I believe something contrary to it, I'm saying, I don't believe you. You're a liar. We need to put off those old patterns, those old patterns of unbelief. And we need to allow God to do his work in us. Because he will. It's interesting, I I was having a discussion, and actually, (laughs) actually this was with a pastor. Another pastor. And he said, 
You know, I went to those places in my life I don't want to visit once. And I decided it really wasn't worth it. Because every time I sit down and think about it, I go back to the same garbage. So what's the option? I'm just going to pretend like it's not there, no matter how bad it stinks. No matter how much it's crippling me, much how much, no matter how much it's holding me back. That's, that's the only option. God will continue to take us through layer after layer after layer of garbage. And it sometimes does seem like things get worse because we've been hiding it for so long because we don't like it. There's a, 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 an author named Thomas Keating. Some of you have read probably some of his material. In his book, Intimacy with God, he compares this process we go through to a Middle Eastern tell, T-E-L. What's a Middle Eastern tell? Well, if you look at a tell, and there's a number of them in the Middle East, this is actually tell Rahav. It's really like, it looks like a hill or almost a mountain, only it doesn't look like it belongs there. What it is, is centuries upon centuries upon centuries, cities being built, destroyed, built on top, destroyed, built on top, destroyed, built on top, destroyed. And all of a sudden, you've got this hill. And what do they do? Archaeologists come and they excavate those tells. And when they excavate it, they begin to find things. Now, this is in the fifth stratum of the tell. All of a sudden, they're finding all kinds of rooms, but they're going through and they're finding trash, they're finding garbage, they're finding pieces of pottery. Shoot, they even found an aviary. They were beekeepers back there and they found it in the stratum that was from like 700 B.C. And as they go through these layers upon layers upon layers... Different cultures, different events, they can be finding it. And it's interesting, in in this particular one, in 732 B.C., they could find that there was a massive destruction, which lines up perfectly when the Assyrian army came through and destroyed the city. There was even remnants of a wall that was eight meters thick around the Acropolis, or the, the defense center in the city, that was leveled and destroyed. And I bring all that up, not to give you some archaeological lesson to say that, you know what, in our lives, we're going to go through layer upon layer upon layer, and we have the power to stop going down those layers if we want to. And Satan wins. But we can go and allow the Lord to take us through those layers, trusting that he's good. I feel like I'm in prison. That word Bob had that somebody feels like they're actually literally in a a spiritual jail, serving a sentence. Jesus is our get-out-of-jail-free card. It doesn't matter what's going on in our circumstances if we trust and believe God. Joseph, look at his story. I mean, his dysfunctional family is just a hoot when you read it, unless you had to live it. And his portrayal to being this amazing man that God used in an amazing, amazing, amazing ways. He had to go through all of those steps of rejection and imprisonment and pain. In 732 B.C., that city was utterly destroyed. There's events in our lives that are like that utter destruction. Sometimes we go through things in our life, in our past. Maybe it's as a child. Maybe it's as an adult. It can be an emotional thing. It can be a physical thing. It can be sexual abuse. It can be divorces. It can be anything. It doesn't matter what it is, but it feels like it just got leveled. Knocked the wind out of you. It can change your life forever. And it will. It's just a matter how. Are we going to trust God and believe that he's a good God and has a plan for my life? That he can heal me, that he can get me through this? That he's trying to teach me something through this? 
None of those utter destructions that came upon you in your life surprised God. Right? He knows everything. He knew. He knew what you're going to go through. And we can look at those things and say, wow, why? Why Why do I have to go through that? Keating wrote this. The Holy Spirit, this is slide five, Mike. The Holy Spirit is like a divine archaeologist digging through the layers of our lives. The Holy Spirit intends to investigate our whole life history, layer by layer, throwing out the junk and preserving the values that were appropriated to each stage of our human development. God wants to go through your life and pick, and pick out the junk. Get rid of it. Set you free from it. Deliver you from it. Whatever word you want to use. So we can get rid of the junk and then we can take and appropriate what he was really allowing us to learn and be taught going through those things. Most of us would say we've learned the most when we've gone through the toughest trials if we look to the Lord. That's when we know we need him because we're beyond our own strength. We have to count on him. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us to that place of home, safety, security, where the abundant life is, where we can live it out. But boy, it sometimes seems like it's getting worse before it gets better. Now there's a wonderful picture, I believe, that we're going to look at in the book of Exodus. I believe God has a promised land, if you would use that term, for each one of us. Ultimately, heaven is that perfect promised land. But I believe we have a promised land that we can live in right now here on earth as children of God. That promised land where we can have that spiritual prosperity, that spiritual peace, where where all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit can truly be living and manifesting in each one of us. Where we can experience the abundant life in Christ. We find that home in that promised land. And it's like, okay, Lord, where in the world is it? And how do I get there? Well, sometimes, most of the time, there's enemies in our promised land. We have an enemy called Satan and all his demonic forces who are continually trying to convince you and I to believe some sort of lie and deception that will prevent us from being able to stand and walk by faith and it will keep us from walking into that promised land. And we've got to remember, it's lies and deceptions. That's what it is. In Exodus chapter 23, we're going to look at a couple of verses in just a second, but God is speaking specifically to Israel about entering into the promised land. You know, they've been there hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. They spent their 40 years, or in the process of spending 40 years in the wilderness, walking around in a great big circle. And God is speaking to them and says, Now, I'm going to give you the promised land. And he says a number of things if you read all of that, which we're not. But he says, first of all, he says, The angel of the Lord is going to go before you. Follow him and listen to him. God goes before us. We don't just have an angel of the Lord going before us. We have the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us to lead us, to guide us into our promised land. He says, I'm going to give it to you. But you know what, Israel? You've got to follow him and you've got to listen to him. Lesson for us. 
We need to hear the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We need to follow the Holy Spirit into our promised land. Obey His voice, He says. And He says, I will send terror. I love this picture. I will send terror before you and I will put terror in the hearts of your enemy. Satan knows he's a defeated foe. The Bible tells us the name of Jesus, every, every, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because Jesus is Lord, right? Satan has not got an ounce of authority in the life of a believer. Unless we give it to him. And that's dumb, but we do it all the time, right? We believe his lies. We believe his deceptions. We sin and we don't repent. We choose to live a sinful lifestyle. We're giving him some authority. We don't want to do that. I want to read a couple of verses. Uh, I'm going to read uh, chapter 23, verses 29 and 30 first. Now he said, I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to give you the land. And it almost seems like a contradiction, but it's not. He says this, but I will not drive them out in a single year. Because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. And then I want to read starting in verse 31. The last part of the verse it says, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. Then he goes on and says, And you shall make no covenant with them, the enemy, or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. Boy, in my mind, to me, this is such a wonderful spiritual picture. God will drive the enemy out. He will give them terror, but he says you will drive them out. He has given you and I authority. He has given you and I authority. We are seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ, that position of authority. That is our position in Christ. We have an enemy. He's given us the victory. Go out and drive him out of your promised land. What in the world, why would we, who, who would allow someone to keep you captive in a prison cell if God had given you the key and the ability to walk out? Why would you do that? Why would I do that? That's exactly what we do in a spiritual sense. We have the authority. We have the ability to do these things. We do not want to do what he was telling the Israelis to do. He says, notice in those last verses in 32, 33, he said, don't make a covenant with them. Don't be doing any deals with the devil. Don't be cutting any deals with the devil. Don't be doing what the enemy does. Don't participate in what they do. Don't worship their gods. You know, the world worships the god of sex, the god of money, the god of materialism, the gods of greed. The, the world worships all of them. And God is telling us, don't worship what the world worships. It's a snare. You'll be caught in it. It'll prevent you from enjoying the promised land, living in the promised land and the peace that you're supposed to have. Don't do it. He says the enemy has been defeated. The power of sin and death has been broken. If we are, in fact, children of God, and you've heard me say this so many times, and, and some of you have heard it more than that because we meet one-on-one -on -one sometimes, but who are you? What is your identity? I am a child of God. 
That is my identity and my position is I am seated in heavenly places with Christ. That is our sanctuary. Our identity and position in Christ. When we know those things, believe those things, we will be able to expel the enemy. Drive him out because he's already defeated. James 4.7 says this, Submit yourselves to God. I put in parentheses in my notes, submit yourselves to his truth. Submit yourselves to his truth. And resist the devil. I put in my notes, and resist his lies and deceptions. And then the devil has to flee. He's got to go. But just as God warned the Israelites, we need to submit to God first. We need to submit to his truth first. Otherwise, we won't recognize the lies and deceptions. And then when we do recognize them, we need to resist the devil, resist the lies, resist the deceptions. And they have to flee. They have to leave. There's another scripture in in 1 Corinthians 10. Because sometimes, and I know we've all been there probably at one time or another, we feel overwhelmed. I mean... I'd like to know what Joseph was thinking when he was in the bottom of the well and heard his brother sitting up there laughing and and drinking their their coffee or whatever, trying to decide whether we should kill him or just sell him as a slave. I wonder what was going through his mind. I wonder what was going through his mind when he got thrown into an Egyptian prison for doing nothing wrong. I wonder what was going through his mind when when the the cupbearer got out and just forgot to tell the Pharaoh about it and he stuck there for years. Boy, it would be tempting if, in my mind to say, what? Where are you, God? I thought you had a plan for my life. I thought you had a purpose for my life. Well, at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. We all get tempted. We all go through tests and trials. And God is faithful he will not allow you or not let you to be tempted be what beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide the way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, He told the Israelites, I'm not going to give you all the land in one year. Why? Because you weren't ready for it. I don't know about you, but I am really glad when I look back over these umpteen years of being a Christian, that he didn't fix me all at once. Because I couldn't have handled what he's already improved. I can't imagine what's left. And if he'd have thrown it at you all at once, I think you'd just fall apart. He only gives us what we can handle. That's why he peels it back layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Finally, you take a deep breath and you think, I've arrived. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm worse than ever. It's like the Apostle Paul. I am the worst sinner. You know what? It makes perfect sense. The closer you and I get to the Lord, the worse we're going to look, no matter how much better we are on the day we get to that spot, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're looking at holiness and righteousness. And the more intimate we get in our relationship and the more we begin to understand holiness and righteousness, the worse I look, even if there's just one speck of dirt on me. Sadly, there's a whole lot of dirt still on me. 
But God promised me he's not going to give me more than I can handle without providing that way of escape. And guess what? You might want to write this down because I'm going to tell you the way of escape. Ready? This is profound. Trust him. Trust him. Whatever it is you're going through, trust him. You'll come out the other side. Trust him. Not only will you come out the other side, you will come out the other side having learned what he wants you to learn. You will come out the other side more closely transformed to the image of Christ than you were when you went in. You know, we, <laughs> we sometimes pray a little foolishly. Lord, transform me into the image of Christ. Do it quickly. Oh my gosh, get ready. Better, better, better be ready. Because if he starts to answer that one, I think he'll just answer it and say, you don't really want that. Let me show you what I'll do next. We need to understand. And I believe we all want to find that spiritual home where we can live out the abundant life in Christ. But we need to understand this. You cannot go home to that place without God. And you cannot go home to that place while you're still holding on to the old home. It doesn't work. You can't do it without God. But you've got to let go of the old home, the old stuff. You've got to let go. You are going to remain in personal bondage until you let go of that garbage. Let God begin to do the healing that only He can do. And you, all of a sudden you find yourself walking more and more into that place of safety and security, that spiritual place of the abundant life in Christ. What do we need to do? Well, remember, it can only happen with God, but there are some practical things that I just want to share briefly. Six or seven of them. Briefly. Really. Briefly. First one I already mentioned. Trust God. Trust God. He is faithful. Stand on His truth. Trust God. If it's in here, you can trust it. If he says you're a child of God, I don't care what your past looks like, what you've done this last week, or what you might do this coming week, you're still a child of God. Trust it. You have an authority. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Trust it. Trust his word. I feel like such a loser. So? Recognize the feeling, discover it's a lie, and believe the truth. I'm a child of God. Stand on His truth. We need to learn to acknowledge our irrational fears. You know, there are some legitimate fears. you got a knife to my throat. I'm, God's going to speak to me through my fear. To be afraid of failure and rejection is irrational. Be afraid of being rejected by God because I'm not good enough is irrational. We need to be able to acknowledge those irrational fears and the lies that we have believed. And I just want to throw this in. Sometimes we need help from someone else to help us see those things. Because by nature, if it's a lie or a deception and we believe it, we only believe it because we don't know any better, right? We can't see it. Sometimes we have picked up some of this baggage from being little kids growing up in our homes and it's been there for so long, we don't even know it's not supposed to be there. That's where we need trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that can help us 
So sometimes we need help discovering these irrational fears and lies that we're believing. And when you've discovered them, you see them, you acknowledge them, repent. 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 One of the reasons I think a lot of times we don't repent of some of these irrational fears, we don't think of it as sin. As I've said before, and I'm beating the drum again, when I believe something that's a lie, contrary to what God has told me, it's sin. When I start having a pity party and going, I am the most worthless piece of scum there ever was. I am the worst pastor on planet Earth. It's sin. Why is it sin? That's not who God says I am. That's not who he says we are. So when we see those irrational lies, the first thing we need to do is repent. Repent of those things. Renounce those things. Command them to be gone and then thank God for his forgiveness. That would seem like a no-brainer, wouldn't it, to accept this forgiveness? There is a number of us in here that struggle with accepting the forgiveness of God. Stupid lies like you don't really deserve to be forgiven. That one's such a big one, it's going to take him a while to forgive you. Whatever the Satan whispers into our mind, we sometimes believe it and we just can't accept his forgiveness. There is nothing you have ever done in your life or will ever do that cannot be put under the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can't be forgiven of except for rejecting Christ. There's no cure for that. And walk out the newness of life. Okay, start walking it out. I'm going to walk that walk of faith. Trusting the word of God. I don't feel like I can do this. That's okay. If the Lord's opened me a door, I'm going to try to do it the best of my ability. God, I'm trusting you. You know, Lord, if I fall flat on my face and fail, thank you, you still love me. I'm still your child. And then that last step. And I really want to encourage you in this one. Surround yourself with like-minded believers. You know, we are to be out in the world to be salt and light. We get that, right? We can't go out and be salt and light if we never mix with the world. But you know what? We need to be surrounding ourselves on a very regular basis with like-minded believers. People who think like we think, that, that we can trust and have them hold you accountable. The fun just disappeared, didn't it? Have them hold you accountable. You need to give somebody permission to hold you accountable. Did you get that? You need to give somebody permission to hold you accountable. If you see those things in my life that I've been wrestling with, if you know that what I'm doing, you know what, please, you hold me accountable. I give you permission to speak into my life. You really need to give them permission. And then receive it. And walk it out. Let's pray. Lord, I... Some words, some of those songs we sang this morning keep running through my mind. That we can't come home running to you. That you know our name. God, sometimes we believe the lie that you don't know our name. You don't know anything about us. You've forgotten who we are. 
Lord, forgive us for believing that lie. That somehow you don't care. Forgive us, Lord. We acknowledge you are a loving God who loves his children unconditionally. God, I pray for all of us in this place. God, that that reality of knowing that you are ready and waiting to set us free of those lies that are holding us in such bondage. All we have to do is come to you.